Good to be with you on this fall Sunday morning. It's a beautiful morning. I want to begin by just telling you about a, a Swedish chemist by the name of Alfred Nobel. In 1867, he woke up one morning to discover his obituary in the paper. And you can imagine what a surprise that was, given that he was obviously still living. And it read, Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in war than ever before. He died a very rich man. It was actually his brother, his older brother, who had passed away, and the newspaper just got the name wrong, but it was an unpleasant surprise nonetheless, and the account of that had a profound impact on his perspective, on his perspective of himself, his perspective of life, and so he realized that he wanted to be known for something other than developing a means to kill people efficiently and amass as much money in the process. He realized that life had to be more than that. So he initiated what we've come to know as the Nobel Prize, which is the award given to scientists and writers who foster peace. Here's what he said. He said, every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. Uh, waking up to that kind of surprise would, I think, would rattle anyone. I think it would challenge anyone to examine life, to examine their perspective, and then adjust accordingly. As we continue in 1 Peter, it's important that we remember the audience that Peter was writing to. He was writing to believers who were in manifold temptations. It was the trial of their faith. He was writing to believers who were suffering greatly. And whether you have been through that type of trial or you are going through it, you should know by now that when you're in that situation, perspective is everything. Perspective is everything. Listen, our perspective drives our behavior. It does. Our perspective drives our behavior. So how you're viewing this trial that you're in determines what your response is going to be. So after calling believers to be holy, Peter's attention shifted to the importance of their perspective during this time. What their outlook needed to be. What their viewpoint needed to be. And what is implied there is that has an impact on us being holy in a dark world and in times of darkness. Again, perspective is everything. It's what you see. It's how you see it. Look at verse 17. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons, judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now, Peter made it clear that we are to be holy because God is holy. So when it comes to holiness, God is the focus. We've hopefully made that clear, but, but we, 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 keep, we continue that thought. If we're talking about trials, in a trial, this is very, very important. 
the focus must be on God, not the trial. This is critical. In a trial, we call on the Father. Prayer. And so if the focus is calling on the Father, well, guess what? The perspective now is on him, not the trial. That's important. If you are going through a trial, listen, and you are not calling on the Father, you're going through a hard time, but you're not praying, you're not calling on him, you're not focused on him, I can promise you, there are probably two words that you're very intimate, intimate with right now, and they would be defeat and despair. I'm telling you, if you're going through a rough time or when you are going through a rough time, if, if, if you will give that kind of ground to the devil where your prayer life basically evaporates, that hard situation becomes unbearable. And you begin flirting with insanity. I mean, it's a thing. But in verse 17, Peter gives us a perspective of God the Father. Look at it again. Who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work. So if we're talking about perspective in trials, here's what we need to understand. We need to have a right perspective of God. This is very, very important when you're going through a trial. You've got to have a right perspective of God. And what we're told in verse 17 is that, listen, God is both impartial and he's just. God is impartial and he is just. This is critical. Christians at this time were viewed as cannibals because of their observance of the Lord's table. Their love for one another, their, their fervent charity, and, and, and their, their desire or their conviction for purity uh, challenged or it confronted the perversity of the day. And so it made them outcasts and it made them targets of persecution. Those things provoked wicked men to treat them, listen, in an impartial and unjust way. But God is not like that. God is not impartial and unjust. God's judgment of men is based on a perfect standard of righteousness. This is how God operates, and this is why, again, you've got to have this perspective of him. Look at Psalm 19, verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And that great chapter of Psalm 119, where every verse is focused on the word of God, uh, we find this phrase five times in Psalm 119, righteous judgments. I mean, everything that God does is going to be righteous. Now, we often talk about the reality of spiritual warfare, and it is that. It is very real. If you don't know that, I'm so sorry. But if we're talking about warfare, one of the things that you and I must be very careful to do is we need to be aware of the tactics of the enemy. How does he roll? How does he work? How is he attacking me? How is he trying to defeat me? You need to know that when you're going through a hard time, as much as you're 
absolutely need to focus on the Lord, but as you're focusing on him, which means you're going to be in his word, God is going to give you insight and perspective into how Satan is trying to defeat you. And that is data that you absolutely need when you're going through a hard time. Here's where we're going. In a trial, this is what you need to know about your enemy. In a trial, one of Satan's goals is to convince us that God is unfair and unloving. you got to know that. When you are in a trial, I promise you, one of the things that Satan is trying to do, he is trying to turn you against God. He wants to convince you, look at God, look at what he's done to you. He's not fair. He's not impartial. He's not really loving. I mean, after all, if he was, would this be happening? You got to know that. This is one of his goals. Now, listen, when you're not in a trial, of course you know that God is impartial. And of course you know that God is just. When you're not in a trial, (laughs) you can give a hearty amen to that. But when you're going through a dark time, when you're hurting, oh my goodness, that lie can seem so very true. Mighty men of God who are, or who were, mightier than I will ever be succumb to this very thing. Look at some of the examples. How about Job? Job 23, 16 and 17. For God maketh my heart soft and the almighty troubleth me. How about that for a perspective? Because I was not cut off before the darkness, neither hath he covered the darkness from my face. Job's view of God was he's working against me. I mean, he could have cut me off from this darkness, but he didn't. How about Psalm 13, 1? How about the mighty man of David? Uh, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? God, we're told in Psalm 121, does not slumber nor sleep. So God is never off the job. God is never oblivious to what's happening. So God can't forget us, if you would, in the sense that the question is being asked, but when the lights go out in life, it can sure seem that way, can it? God, where did you go? Where are you? How about Jeremiah? Jeremiah 20, verse 7, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. It's interesting. What a word, deceived. Do we not associate that word deceived or deception with the devil? (laughs) That's what Satan does. But Jeremiah was hurting so bad. God, you've deceived me. It's a mighty man of God. How about the disciples? Mark 4, 38. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, should have told them something. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? 
Do you care about us? <laughs> they were in a storm. They were terrified. Do you even care about us? Of course he does. Absolutely. If he didn't care about you, what kind of Lord would he really be? This is why, listen, this is why your view of God has to be biblical. It has to be biblical. It cannot be emotional. It cannot be intellectual. It, 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 it can't be what you think or what you feel or what you see. It's got to be what you know about him. It's got to be based on what you know for sure about who he is. And when you know the God of the Bible, when those attacks are coming against you, when Satan is trying to turn you against God by flooding your heart and your mind with lies about how unfair God is and how unloving God is and how God has betrayed you, you have to say, you know what? That's an impossibility. Because the Bible says that it was impossible for God to lie. So that can't be true. If your view of God is not biblical, if your perspective of God is not biblical in a trial, you are giving Satan a massive advantage in that battle. And he will work you over and wear you down and absolutely overwhelm you with discouragement that will crush you. Crush you. Verse 17. Again, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. The first time this word sojourn shows up is in Genesis 12, verse 10, regarding Abram when he went down to Egypt. There is a famine. We know Egypt is a picture of the world. And so Abram's time there was not permanent. It was temporary. This word sojourn in Genesis 12, 10 has in view turning aside from the road. If you've ever taken a long road trip, one of the things that many of us have done is we'll break the trip up, right? You know, we'll drive for eight hours or whatever, and then we'll turn off the road and do what? We'll check into a hotel. Why? For a temporary stay. It's not permanent. It's just a stop on the way. This is how you and I, listen, are to view our time in this world. It's just a temporary stay. And I do mean temporary. It's very, very short. So in a trial, we need to have a right perspective of ourselves. And by the way, if you have a right perspective of God, you'll have a right perspective of yourself. But if you have a poor perspective of God, you'll have the wrong perspective of yourself. This is how this works. So what should our perspective of ourselves be? We are sojourners. This is how you have to see yourself in this world. And that becomes very critical when you're going through a trial. You are a sojourner. You are. And 
I am as well. In chapter 2 of 1 Peter verse 11, Peter wrote, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now this is critical. Listen. The believer in Jesus Christ is on their way to heaven and will be there very soon. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I mean, this is, we're talking about perspective. You've been made to sit together in heavenly places. You are, your conversation is in heaven, Philippians chapter 3. You are a citizen of heaven. You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. You belong to heaven. You are on your way, and I mean it when I say you will be there, I will be there, we will be there very soon. Consider these passages. And again, we're talking about perspective. And so, hey, listen, let me just challenge you. You've got to be a biblicist. You've got to be a biblicist. Meaning your, your perspective is shaped and it is framed and it is governed by God's word Everything that you look at, you look at through that lens and you judge everything based on that. So if you are a biblicist, then you will absolutely have a right perspective of yourself in this world. And specifically your time here. Look at Psalm 39 verse 5. Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth. And mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Selah. Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Uh, James 4.14. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. That's got to be your perspective about your time here. <laughs> it is like that. Listen, should the Lord tarry his coming, we will be attending one another's funerals sooner than you think. And that can be uncomfortable to process, if not fearful. I read an article once where someone said that one of the things that people struggle with when it comes to death as they get older is they realize it's not optional. People have a hard time with it. I was, I was meeting with a man last week. He was my former manager. I know him very well. I, I would give just about anything to lead this man to Christ. And I have been in, I mean, some serious, substantive discussions with him. And he is so terrified of death that if I get even close to the discussion, he will pivot the conversation. Like it is, it is, I mean, I, I have been with him where I am talking with him about God's word. I'm talking with him about eternity. And he, I, I remember one time in particular, he's visibly shaking. 
I mean, it, it is, no, it's not optional. <laughs> and as you get older, you do realize. I remember I was getting a filling a few years ago. And the dentist said to me, she said, this will last you 30 years. Now, had that happened 10 years ago, I wouldn't have thought anything about it. But this was a few years ago. And the thought came very quickly, I may not be here. As you get older and you walk with God and you're in God's word, you realize it's short. (laughs) It's quick. You are really just passing through. And it's nothing to be terrified about or nervous about, I guess, if you have a right perspective of God and you have a right perspective of yourself, then you're going to view that right. Now, please understand, (laughs) um, we can't overlook how we are to pass this time. Verse 17 tells us, look at it, in fear. In fear. We are to pass through this world in the fear of God. That's how. This is why having a right perspective of God is so very critical. Listen, if we fail to see him right, the short time that we do have here will be extremely difficult. Listen, not because of the trials that we go through, but it'll be so very difficult because of our lack of reverence for God. When you don't possess the fear of God, you do invite great difficulty into your life. Why? Because your life is an offense to him. You're living in outright disregard of who he is. He is only God to you on paper. He's not God to you in your heart and in your mind. You don't fear him. And so, yes, for the believer who is just sojourning through life here without the fear of the God, life is miserable. Miserable. (laughs) We're to do it in fear. Now, what Peter said in verses 18 and 19 should move us to do just that, to sojourn in fear. Look at it. For as much as you know that... Ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We need to have a right perspective of our redemption critical. During this time, redemption was essentially a financial transaction where typically a family family member would purchase a slave so that they could set them free. And obviously to do that, it took money to do that, but that wasn't how our redemption worked. It, It wasn't silver and gold as Peter mentioned here. Our redemption was far more precious than that. Nor was it as a result of of religious men by tradition from your fathers. It wasn't 
by Judaism. Our redemption was purchased with the precious blood of Christ. A woman was shopping for a sweater. She wanted to find a very nice sweater for as cheap as she could. So she's at the clearest rack and she's looking and she sees the sweater. It's the right color, it's the right size, and most importantly, it's the right price. Eight bucks. So she grabbed it, bought it, and then when she got home, she realized that, oh wow, the the material on this sweater is, it's like silk. And this sweater, it has an elegance to it. Wow, this was on the clearance rack for eight bucks. What a steal. She thought she had just found this little cheap sweater that just fit the occasion and everything just lined up just right. And then she, she looked at the price tag and realized that the original price was $124. All of a sudden, this, this sweater that seemed like not much, you know, became very, very valuable. I think sometimes we have a clearance rack perspective on the blood of Christ. We don't see it as precious, invaluable, extremely costly. Brothers and sisters, our redemption was precious. Precious. In trials, we can be convinced that God is unfair and unloving. Listen, when we have a cheap perspective of the blood of Christ, this is where, if you're honest, you're not walking or sojourning in fear and one of the dead giveaways is your salvation has become so very cheap to you. It doesn't mean a whole lot to you. You don't think about it unless it's the Lord's Supper. Yeah, you'll think about it then, but apart from that, What next? What else you got for me, God? That's one of the things that you always find with believers who are immature and selfish and really believe that God owes them. Calvary, the precious blood of Christ, is nothing to them. Nothing. God owes them. Can I tell you, that's one of the things that really terrifies me. God forbid that I would ever get to the place in my life. Guys, listen, I, I'm not, God forbid, I'm not boasting. I was lying in bed this morning, and I was just telling God, God, thank you. Thank you. God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Your long-suffering. God, your kindness to me, your faithfulness, your goodness. God, I could lay here all day and just say thank you. God, you don't owe me anything. Nothing. The blood of Christ was precious. It's not cheap. It was not cheap. It cost him dearly. 
And here's what makes it precious. Look at Acts 20, verse 28. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. The blood shed for us was the very blood of God. That's why it's precious. God shed his blood. It's precious. When you are in a trial and Satan is trying to convince you that God is unloving and unfair, remember, no, 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 no. No, he shed his blood for me. Of course he loves me. Of course. If he didn't love you, would he have ever done such a costly thing? Why would he even care about your eternity? Your eternity. Why would he care? Notice verse 20. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. Listen, for you. For you. Oh, God doesn't love me. Are you kidding me? For you. Who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. I can't even understand this, guys, but before the foundation of the world, God had my redemption and yours in mind. And someone's trying to whisper in your ear that God is unfair and unloving. Before you were even conceived, he had your redemption in mind for you. And the believer who has a cheap perspective of the blood of Christ will choose to forget what God has done for them. And only think on what he hasn't done for them. Listen, the blood of Christ is so precious that it ought to provoke us alone to give thanks and praise to God for all of eternity. Just on that, that's how precious it is. That is a crippling perspective in a trial when you have a cheap perspective on the blood of Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. God raised him up from the dead and gave him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope would be in him. You know what that tells me? And again, this is, this is crazy, right? This is crazy. Because if we're all honest, the more time we spend with God in this book, 
the more intimate we get with him, the more we really see who he is and the more that we see who we are. But yet, when you read what we are just looking at here, God did everything that he did because he is love. And God really desires to have an eternal relationship with us. Are you kidding me? This God who is awesome and incredible and majestic and marvelous and wonderful and great and amazing and holy, holy, holy and righteous and pure and perfect and powerful wants a relationship with me. He did it so that he could purchase me and have me for eternity. I don't understand that. I mean, I'm sure you think you're all wonderful, but I mean, gosh, compared to that God, why would he even give you and I the time of day? Perspective. Here's what this tells us ultimately about our redemption. Very critical. We'll close with this. God redeemed us because he wanted to, not because he had to. You know, one of the ways that you can always discern that your perspective of God is off, that it's not biblical, When it comes to God's love, this is how many of us think. And this says that we're not close enough to him. Because if we were close enough, we wouldn't think this way. But this is how many of us think, and it's subconscious. Listen, God loves me because he has to, not because he wants to. And that bleeds into your view of your redemption which is not good. So God redeemed me because he had to, not because he wanted to. God was under some obligation or some pressure from somewhere, who knows, but, but push comes to suffer. I mean, God really, you know, that'd be like one of my children, one of your children. And I know you. This would tear your heart out. If one of your children said, you know what, mom, dad, you love me just because you have to. How would you take that? That would tear your heart out, wouldn't it? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Man, I love you. No, 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 no. <laughs> I would move heaven and earth for you. What wouldn't I do for you? I would give anything. And some of you... That's exactly how you think of God's love to you. He loves me because he has to, not because he really wants to. Perspective. Lord, thank you for what you have given us here in 1 Peter. I do believe that we have some things to think on. God, help us 
to make sure that our perspective is biblical. God, that is critical in a trial. It's also critical when we're not. Because God, our perspective will drive our behavior. So if our perspective is off, our behavior will be off. So help us with this for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.